The Role of Political Science in American Public Life, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. We've come to the 100th episode of the Science of Politics. Thanks so much for listening. To celebrate, I invited Ezra Klein on to discuss how well political science informs American politics and public policy. He is New York Times columnist, a founder of Vox, and host of The Ezra Klein Show. He's been at the forefront of popularizing, integrating, and critiquing political science research, including in his recent book, Why We're Polarized, now out in paperback. We discuss how political science has changed in the age of Twitter and Trump, and the roles of scholars in debates on climate, COVID, and race. Here's our conversation. It's been almost seven years since you wrote that the rise of political science was the best thing to happen in political journalism since you've been in it. So has it continued to, to rise and uh, to what extent has it remained a positive influence? Oh, it's a good question. So I don't, I think a lot of the gains were there at the beginning. So I don't think you keep having quite the same level of the curve. Let me be more critical uh, of political science over the past couple of years, because I continue to learn a tremendous amount from it, but I've also become uh, a little more measured in that in that judgment, which is simply to say, and you can make this critique of much of my traditional work as well, political science is extraordinarily valuable at describing what is. And it has a lot of trouble with what isn't yet, or also what ought to be. And I think the great failure of political science over the past couple of years, and something that has, I think, properly increased a certain amount of my skepticism and others in, in it, is believing in the boundaries of its own models a little bit too much. You know, the, the tremendous collapse, for instance, of the party decides model in, in, in 2016, which I think led to a lot of people, including a lot of political scientists I was talking to in that era, um, very much underestimating the possibility of something like Donald Trump. So I derive tremendous benefit continuously from political science. And I think it is nothing but good that there's so much more political science in the journalistic and, and Twitter political conversations. But I also think it's a, like anything else, it is one of the one of many tools in the toolkit. So we do have a reputation for uh, describing that things are broken and why they're broken rather than uh, necessarily sort of offering uh, solutions for them. But in the past, you've sort of seen our structural theories as sort of adding to uh, what the what what the conventional wisdom looks like. So how valuable is it to say this is a structural problem that will be difficult to solve without, you know, major institutional change that doesn't seem to be forthcoming? I think it's extraordinarily valuable to correctly describe structural problems, whether or not you can solve them. I mean, obviously, that's a big part of of my work. It's a big part of, of my book. So my uh, trust in that and, and my belief in the importance of that, it, it, it really hasn't changed. This is a question I will, I will push to you, though, a little bit, because one of my intuitions is that the political science conversation has changed quite a bit since political scientists took to Twitter. So when I write that seven years ago, I'm really talking about political science in the age of blogs, um, in the age of wonk blogging, you know, the monkey cage and, and, and work you and others are doing. You know, and now when I think of where the political science conversation is, it seems less centered there. And this is true for a lot of different disciplines that, that converge around politics, and it is on Twitter. And I would say political scientists are very different on Twitter than they are in blogs and they are what, when I talk to them. So uh, an interesting... Because they're more activists or because... Yeah, they, because they're... Yeah. And also because the ones who are bigger voices are the ones who are more unsparing. Um, Twitter compels or at least incentivizes a different kind of communication from all of us 
who are going to thrive on it uh, than, than, than other mediums do. So I also think an interesting piece of this is that the political science conversation is a little bit different uh, that, than it was then. Um, and in many ways, a little less political science-y. Uh, this is not really about you, who I think uh, manages to, to run a very, very, very valuable Twitter feed of just like, here's a bunch of papers and here's a bunch of books. But but I do think in general, the role political scientists are, are playing in the conversation has flattened on Twitter, much as it has for journalists and activists and to some degree politicians. So everybody's just given takes and is a little less differentiated in their expertise and in their role than was true 10 years ago, certainly than was true. 25 years ago. But I'd be curious if you see it that way. Well, so let's talk about some specific examples, because I, I looked through some guests that we've both had on our podcast. So they include uh, Leah Stokes, Jamila Michener, Francis Lee, Lee Drutman, John Sides, Liliana Mason, Eitan Hirsch. So tell me kind of what what would cause you to bring political scientists uh, to a, a broader audience? Uh, and is it is it that that sort of line that they're willing to kind of go beyond a little bit and, and you, serve these intermediary roles? You dodged my question, Matt. <laughs> no, I, uh, do, you, do you not give answers on the show? I'm the only one that, who gives answers. That, that's that that is, I think, a piece of the answer is are we is it the political science has changed uh, or just that there's sort of a niche of, of people who who go beyond uh, the research to uh, be involved in a public conversation, and that that in, inherently kind of entails some activism. I, activism is first not the word I would use for any of this. Um, it is more look political science research, like a lot of complicated things, translates only so well to, to Twitter or to anywhere else. Um, some of those folks I think do it really well, and and some of them it depends on the day. I've had a lot of political scientists on the show, including the folks you you mentioned there, and, and then obviously some others like, you know, John Sides and, and Vavrek and Tesla and, and, and so on. And I think the conversations we're able to have on, on the podcast are just different in form and in quality to what happens on Twitter. But I think a bunch of the people you named are really good at Twitter. Like, for instance, I think the work um, Leah Stokes does on Twitter is actually pretty invaluable. Like her ability to bring the work she has done on, on climate politics to kind of continuous ongoing analysis of, of climate decisions is really, it's, she's one of the people who uses the platform extraordinarily well. Um, some of the others you mentioned just don't strike me as that active on Twitter. Like I actually don't know if Frances Lee has a Twitter account or not. Um, if she does, it's not to my knowledge a, a heavily used one. So I think that's a complicated question, but I it is obviously going to be true that the political scientists who... I bring onto the show are the ones who I think of as the most talented public communicators and who have the most relevant research to ongoing issues. At the same time, that's different than that being sort of the, the universe of political scientists I or other journalists will, will benefit from. Um, today, one of the things I'm working on is a column for this week that'll be out, I'm sure, by the time this podcast comes out, which is about the California recall election and the ways in which California's progressive era governmental reforms, which were, of course, designed recalls, propositions, initiatives, um, you know, so on and so forth, to increase democratic participation in the system, often end up doing almost the opposite. They become ways that small and organized groups can foil broader public will. You know, and for that, I'm, I'm relying very much on people like Bruce Kane and, and, and Francis Fukuyama and his ideas of, of vitocracy. And so, I don't know, for me, there's still a tremendous amount of value in political science, but the people who are, who are uh, 
hot in the public debate and and not. But I, I do think that political science, like everything else, has changed in the way, in, in the place a lot of that conversation is going on. I think it's true for economics. I think it's true for journalism. You know, if you want to be at the, the white hot heart of the conversation, it's in a place that is necessarily a little bit less friendly to nuance and to, to complicated methodology sections. So you also relied a lot on political science and why we're polarized. So talk about what uh, you you learned from that, but also why, I guess, what frustrated you about the answers you didn't find. So I don't think there there is no why we're polarized without the work I've done um, trying to learn from political scientists over the past 10 years. Why we're polarized is very much an effort to merge traditional political reporting, where I talk to senators and staffers and presidents and White House staffers and you know, interest group leads and so on with the broader structural analysis and the, the broader temporal analyses of political science. And so what I'm trying to do there, and what I try to do in a lot of my columns, is merge those two types of reporting in a way I think you don't always see. To, to my view, some of the weakness of pure political science is it it is thin on the way actors see their own actions unfolding and the pressures they're under. But of course, the weakness of talking to those actors directly is they don't always understand the structural context that eventually leads them to take the action they do. And so we're all very good at rationalizing our, our ultimate decision, but we don't always see what made that ultimate decision the one that made sense to us. So I'm trying to bring that together and create, as I, as I talked about in the book, which is now out in paperback and, and people should get, I'm trying to create a, a model for understanding the political system. Uh, in terms of the, the biggest frustration out of political science while, while doing the book, and, and I hope um, but my present company will not take offense at this. The hardest chapter for me was the Republican and Democrats chapter, which was fundamentally a chapter about asymmetric polarization, and I would say even beyond that, asymmetric radicalization. And I was really struck when I really dug into it, how much I, I had absorbed the idea that asymmetric polarization was a known and measurable phenomena, which it is and is true. Um, and at the same time, there was not to me nearly as much in the way of causal analysis of that phenomena than I had thought there was. So there are um, some of the best work, I think, um, is work you and, and Hopkins have done. But, but as you know from the book, I don't find it totally convincing. And I think it has some things that you, you don't give enough credit to. But much more broadly, a lot of it was just very individualized. Um, a lot of the work I saw there on, on asymmetric polarization was, you know, tracking what Newt Gingrich did in the 90s or, you know, what so-and-so did in the 80s. Uh, and and to me, what that ended up missing was, well, why are these kinds of figures taking root and succeeding on the Republican side and not on the Democratic side? As I think I put it in the book, it's focusing on the flowers and not on the soil. Different kinds of plants grow in different kinds of soil. And what you're saying is that repeatedly different kinds of Republicans are taking root than, than Democrats. So like, there is a difference between a party that has the same congressional leadership, more or less, than it has had since 06 and a party that keeps deposing its own speakers, you know, and, and knocking out its leadership, like we just saw, of course, with, um, with Cheney. And so I was struck by how weak the causal analyses of asymmetric polarization were. And, um, and, and to me, it was useful because like, I ended up having to do a lot of work and I think came up with something, something valuable in terms of, you know, differing democratic incentives. And then in a space I'm a little less confident in. Um, and so I didn't, push it too hard in the book, but I, I think is true, even though I can't prove it, different psychological qualities on, on the two sides. Um, and, and particularly the fact that you have psychological sorting among whites and not among um, blacks or um, 
to a somewhat lesser degree, but still um, uh, Latinos or, or Asians strikes me as, as really important. So I appreciate it in some ways like that, that it, it forced me to do more original work. But for all the work that's been done on polarization, that struck me as a pretty big, pretty big blind spot and, and a, a weakness in the literature that was not drawn, people did not draw much attention to in the many years they spent telling me about it. So you're a liberal commentator in addition to being a, uh, a promoter of, of research, and we are an overwhelmingly uh, liberal uh, discipline. Uh, how do you avoid confirmation bias? How do you um, work around it? Uh, and is there any responsibility we as scholars have for taking into account where we are on the political spectrum? Well, I think it would be folly to say I avoid confirmation bias. I'm certain that I don't. I, I try, right? I try to, to, to take counterarguments seriously and look at the methodologies. And I try to offer pretty fair readings of, of, of people's um, views who are not on my own. So, I mean, that is one place where it's valuable to me to not be fully within political science. As I said, I do a lot of political reporting. And so when I write about Mitch McConnell, I have spoken to Mitch McConnell's staff you know, an ongoing way for years to understand the way he thinks and the way he approaches things. Um, when I write about the Trump administration, it's not like I never spoke to anybody who worked for Donald Trump. And so I'm, I'm not just within the, the political science approach on this. But the broader thing you're, you're pointing out is really hard. Um, and I believe you're working on a book about the diploma divide, if I'm not wrong. And so a book about educational polarization, and that strikes me as a real accelerant of this as the parties split by education. And I mean, post-grad is just an overwhelmingly democratic group now that's also going to show up more and more in in the academic discipline so there is no doubt in my mind that that influences and shapes political science and on the other hand it was easier i don't know what you're going to do as a republican political scientist in the era of donald trump if you want to maintain a valuable identification as a Republican and also be honest about what's going on. Um, as you know, Donald, as identification with Trump and some of the things he says begins to become the nature of Republican identity, certain very tough choices about the truth and empirical work are, are forced upon people. And so one of the difficulties for me, and this isn't just in political science, it's even in just bringing people onto my podcast, a lot of the Republicans who who are Republicans who do not like you know the left do not like Joe Biden, they're not really Republicans anymore. They don't represent where the party is anymore. Um, they you know I people who for years uh, you know take a take somebody who I respect greatly like a Yuval Levin, extremely influential within the the House uh, House Republicans you know certainly in the Paul Ryan era was I think was a, I think it's fair to say was a, a reasonably close confidant to Paul Ryan's. And then as the party goes on, you know, Yuval is, is somebody who is fighting for the future of conservatism, but I'm not sure that talking to him is giving me, you know, uh, or, or giving my audience, say, a fair representation of what, like, the center of the Republican Party is now thinking and doing. And so there, one of the difficulties with sorting in the way it has happened, and then the, the Trump takeover in the way that has happened, is that it has made it harder to maintain mixed compositions in empirically rigorous disciplines um, or in places where you want to have empirically rigorous voices. And I don't really know what to do about that, but I'm also not going to you know, sit around pretending or, or telling other people they should pretend that the Trumpified Republican Party is a, you know, that there, there are no costs to maybe maintaining your uh, membership in good standing. 
So how did we do in trying to understand Democratic backsliding under the Trump administration? Uh, there were several high profile efforts. There was an increase in comparative uh, and international relations scholarship on American politics. Um, there are some people say we overreacted, others say we underreacted. Um, what's your assessment? Uh, I found it valuable. I don't know how to rate that overreacted, underreacted set of claims because, of course, part of reacting sharply to a democratic threat, hopefully, at least theoretically, makes its full flowering less likely. But I think if you went back in time and you asked the people who said you're underreacting to rate the likelihood of the events we saw after the 2020 election, they would have rated them very low and said, that's ridiculous. None of that's going to happen. And then it all happened. And it did not work, but it was a very out of sample event for modern American politics. Not, of course, for historical American politics, which I think is an important point, but for, for modern American politics. And so I'm not very friendly to the underreacting crowd. It seems a little wild to me to look around in the current system and watch Republicans primarying other Republicans who did not buy into Trump's post-election lies and say, ah, there's no real threat to democracy here. You know, you're just, you're just, you're just overreacting. Uh, I think the rising comparative is really useful. I just did a piece, uh, my July 4th column was talking to political scientists who were born and work outside of the US about how the American political system works, looks to them. I thought that was a useful piece and I enjoyed hearing their perspectives. And and weirdly, it made me a little bit more uh, optimistic about our system where I do think one thing, and maybe this speaks to the previous question too, Matt, I do think one thing that is underplayed in the way political scientists are talking about the current moment in democracy is that what we're seeing is not mere democratic backsliding. It's the democratic polarization, right? There is a polarization. We are, we are sorting. The parties are sorting in their views of democracy itself. So one reason why if you look at a list of how difficult it is to vote in different states, and we can argue about the methodologies of, uh, of these, but, but you use it as an example for this, for this argument why you will not just see a pure blue to red list is that voting has not traditionally been all that polarized an issue in sort of modern decades of American politics. Like for instance, mail-in voting, which is now so loathed on the right, is something that took root primarily uh, in more Republican states for for years. Um, But what has happened the past couple of years is not simple backsliding. It's also that the Democratic Party has become committed in a way it has not been before to more democracy. I mean, obviously, the Democratic Party has um, a, a deeper history in being a very anti-democratic party, right? I mean, the, 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 its period is a Dixiecrat party, uh, at least in large part. But but more in, in more modern times, it's like, you know, roughly pro-democracy, but it doesn't try that hard at it. I mean, now they really are. Whether or not they pass HR1, whether or not they pass HR4, we will see. But they are committed to these things in a way that has not been true. And so one of the things that I think the democratic backsliding conversation has missed is that unlike in a lot of the countries often used as examples there, you know, let's not use like Nazi Germany here. Let's just talk about, I think, things that are closer, like Turkey under Erdogan, um, you know, Hungary under Orban, uh, obviously people talk about all the time. Uh, You could say, you know, to some degree, Russia under Putin, you know, we can name a few more. One of the things that tends to happen there is you have a party that actually is dominant, at least at the start, in terms of its public support, and then it uses its dominance uh, among the public and among the machinery of the government to constrict the danger that elections pose to it, right? They, they, They have power and they use it to become a competitive authoritarian state. 
That is not really the case here. And I think this is underplayed. What is happening is that Republicans are trying to do that as far, I think, as anybody can tell. At the same time, though, Democrats actually hold more certainly national power um, and certainly national legislative and, and presidential power. And they are trying to use that power, again, may not succeed, to radically expand the, the boundaries and processes of democracy. I mean, if something like HR1 or even the Joe Manchin compromise version passed, it would be not the, the pre-Trump status quo ex ante. It would be a completely new approach to election administration. I mean, a ban on partisan gerrymandering, election day is a federal holiday, the, you know, the revitalization, this would not be new, but the revitalization of, of the Voting Rights Act. You know, there's a, a nationwide automatic voter registration of a sort. This would be a really big push forward. And so the fact that we're having a fight over democracy, where at least one plausible outcome is a radical expansion of it, is, I think, a little bit underplayed in part because, you know, both pundits like me in the political science profession has been focused on, you know, the threat of Trump and is more loss averse uh, than, you know, kind of imagining what are also the the more positive possibilities of the moment. So uh, let me ask a question about differences across disciplines since you mentioned um, relying on psychologists some for your book. And I know that you're very familiar with economists' role in public policy debates as well. Um, so, so talk about political science relative to economists, sociologists, psychologists. Are they all moving in the same direction in terms of their uh, public influence and their role in policy debates? Is there something political scientists can learn from the other disciplines? I'm not sure I have a good answer to that, to be honest. Uh, my sense is economics has weakened quite a bit as a public player in the past couple of years. Um, and not just, by the way, in the Biden administration, but, but in the Trump administration, too. And so, one, the economics discipline doesn't speak with as clear a voice as it, as it did previously, but also it is not listened to in the same way that it was previously. Um, I don't want to say Keynes was right and economists are now dentists, but they are much more secondary to political movements now than they were before. And, and one reason for that, which I think is appropriate, is that one really significant critique to make of the economists, particularly the, the economists who, who operated within the political sphere, is that they did not understand political risk correctly. They maybe understood economic risks. We can argue which ones understood them correctly and which ones didn't. Um, and then you get into whole arguments about boundaries of the political system. But putting all of that aside, they did not understand the political risk that was being created by, by a weak economy um, and, and by a long period of, of undershooting, you know, full employment and wage gains. So I don't want to say that's the whole reason for Donald Trump or other things, but I, I do think political risk is being taken more, more seriously than it, than it has been previously. Uh, in terms of the other disciplines, I, I, I wouldn't say I know exactly. I mean, I talk to a lot of sociologists. I find their work very, very valuable. Their work doesn't tend to come with as much of a, centralized political valence as as political science. And by that, I don't mean that they're not liberal. I think sociologists are very, very liberal. What I mean is that they are not organized in the same way to try to, to have a view on how American public policy or political coalitions should change or be understood. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's there's a lot of different stuff out there. But I, I do think of the the primary disciplines that I tend to, to work with are, are political science and economics. And you know, I think that for them, frankly, like for everybody else, it's been a hard couple of years. Uh, and, you know, but in some ways, I think probably compared to when I started in covering politics in 2005 professionally, I would say political scientists have raised up in status quite a bit 
And I think economists have lowered in status quite a bit. And what about academics compared to the think tank community or the the sort of policy more policy advocacy world? Is there are there things that that we could learn? Is there any is there still a need for those kind of translators of of research for for policy debates? I would say in general, I think the think tank world has weakened quite a bit. That's my impression as somebody who 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 draws on a lot of that work, and and I think there are a couple reasons for it. One is again the fact that there's a flattening going on. And so many more kinds of players from academics on Twitter to journalists like me to, you know, all kinds of uh, academic, you know, organizations have encroached more on the think tank space than had been true before. Um, there are just a lot of people who are not literally located in Washington, D.C., who are able to be in an ongoing, constant way part of the D.C. conversation. And so part of like the, the value of think tanks was a, a, a localism to them. Like they are there, they have meetings, like you can go to a lunch and that's just, you know, geog- geography has become a little bit less important in, in, in politics. Uh, so that's one. My subjective impression, and I don't, I, I've not tracked this over time, but I think think tanks have ended up in a funding cul-de-sac where they get a lot of individual donations for individual projects that are not often the most valuable or uh, important projects. And so if you look at the overall output of some of the major think tanks, you end up scratching your head a little bit about why the it looks the way it does. And the answer is like some rich people were willing to fund that particular constellation of, of outcomes. And then I think that the same, you know, as I, as I sort of offered at the top of this, a bit of a critique of, of political science, but also of myself for not thinking enough about the way things ought to be. I think that is afflicted think tanks or many of them as well. Before I came to Washington, D.C. or before I began, you know, blogging about politics, think tanks sounded like just places where the smartest people in the world went to think. And in fact, they're very bounded. Um, they're, they're very much about what's politically possible. They're trying to husband their, their influence with, you know, whichever party they're a little bit more aligned with. Polarization has made it harder for the think tanks to, 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 to be influential. So their work is valuable. I mean, I'm not saying it isn't, and I in no way want to suggest that working within the constraints of the politically possible is somehow like no longer a useful thing to do. It is necessary. It is done. It is important. Um, I just wrote a, a, a column on, I guess it wasn't out of a think tank, but out of a, you know, a kind of like new school proposal for, for a guaranteed income. But I, I do think there's a little bit more energy, and this also reflects kind of social media engagement dynamics, and it also just reflects an opening of the political imagination over the past couple of years broadly. There's a little bit more of uh, an, an interest in you know, how the world should be, putting aside the question of what Congress can actually pass. And I think that's been a, a much harder place for think tanks to play in. And so some of the, the, the people who have been willing to, to move in that direction, who are often sort of more independent ideological entrepreneurs or small, smaller journals or whatever, have, have eaten a little bit of the think tank space of influence and, and imagineering. And how about journalism? You obviously have been involved in creating this space of explanatory journalism. There's a lot of complaints about the financial state, um, but it, in some ways it's a, it's a golden age of, of the takes industry as well. So uh, where, where are journalists in using research and, and informing policy? Well, I definitely think there are too many takes. Um, if you flip back you know, a decade or two to, to the rise of blogging, um, blogging emerges in a time when there just isn't that much political opinion, full stop. This is a point I've made many, many times, but when I'm, I, I'm not, I'm 37, like I'm not a hundred. 
when I was growing up in, in Orange County, we got the LA Times. There was the nightly news. We didn't really listen to conservative talk radio. My family was not a family that, that subscribed to political magazines. So basically, the political opinion I routinely had access to was the op-ed page of the LA Times. There was no political opinion, that is to say, to a first approximation. You know, this was even before really the cable, the cable news space blew up in the way it does, in the way it later does. And now, I mean, we're just drowning in political opinion. And so I think it has made it harder to stand out and add value just for takes. I mean, there are people who can do it because they're that good, but there just aren't that many of them. And so I still think there's a tremendous role for well-done reported explanatory work, which of course has an element of the take in it sometimes, oftentimes even. Um, I think broadly speaking, the, the real problem in journalism is not at the national level, it's at the state and local level. I think that if what you're looking for is national political commentary, explanation, et cetera, there is, even right now with all the difficulties in the business models, there is probably more of it accessible than has ever been true ever before. But if you're trying to understand what is happening in Sacramento, that's not true. If you're trying to understand you know, what is happening in Minnesota politics, I'm not sure that's true at all. If you're trying to understand what's happening in San Francisco, I mean, the San Francisco Chronicle is weakened compared to what it once was, as are a lot of these papers. So I have real concerns about the state of journalism. The state of national level political journalism has issues, but is not a, at a point, in, in my view, at least a crisis. Um, you know, we all have our, our, our views on how our industry could be better uh, and, and, and how, frankly, it could also be worse. But I think the state and local situation is, uh, is pretty much a disaster. So we've just been through uh, a year and a half of, of COVID to kind of uh, be, a, be a case study of how all this uh, came together. Um, uh, th there were, of course, important uh, social science regularities uh, that were discovered during, during COVID, um, but there were plenty of complaints about uh, moving too fast or, or making uh, errors along the way as well. So, so how, did, how, did all of these, how did all of this come together? Uh, in, in analyzing COVID? Did we produce useful information? Uh, and, and was it based on, on research? Having just written a book where the entire point of it was that polarization and the broader ecosystem that drives it had locked people in political place and turned us into a polity that was scarily devoid of accountability um, or openness to change for new information. If you had told me what would have happened over the, I mean, I released a book right before COVID. COVID interrupted the second half of the tour. If you had told me what would have happened over the next year and then asked me where, say, President Trump's approval rating would be or where the American polity would be, I would have assumed much more change than we saw. Um, I think I ran the numbers on this at one point. Uh, and if you look from, the one year before Donald Trump took the stage at the RNC that day, if I'm remembering this right, his approval rating went up one point and his disapproval went up three points. That was it. You know, the, 20, the 2020 election looked pretty much like the 2016 election. I mean, there are differences. It was high turnout. It was pretty similar. I mean, the differences are important. I'm not taking them away, but, but, but it was pretty similar. So the level of lock-in Whatever you think of as a cause, whether you think it's, you know, information ecosystems or just an unwillingness to, to you know, reevaluate everything, um, you know, based on even a pretty extraordinary event, the level of lock-in was extraordinary. And I think it has to worry you.
I mean, it, it just makes clear that even pretty extraordinary events, which have a tremendously significant role for confidence in them, are not going to be enough most of the time to lead to dramatic electoral changes, which, which you know, creates a real accountability problem. Then add that in, you know, my endless, you know, obsession with like the way the Republican Party is insulated from democracy by its geographic distribution and, and by gerrymandering. Um, and you have a you have a real real issue. You know, the idea that we were within a couple tens of thousands of votes of the election being thrown to the House of Representatives where Trump would have won. I mean, that should scare anybody. Well, there was uh, the view that this wasn't a political science or social science uh, question in the beginning and, and uh, social scientists should should stay out of it. But it, but it certainly seems like a lot of the, the trends were right in the political science wheelhouse. The state government uh, responses were very polarized. Uh, the public responses were very polarized. There was a lot of traditional leadership following. We're still going through it with vaccines. Um, so, I mean, does, does that suggest maybe there wasn't enough political science in the, in the conversation? Maybe. Again, as somebody who tracked a lot of political scientists during this and talked to them during it, because I continue to cover politics during this period, I would say that a lot of people made the same mistake, which is a mistake I talk about making in my book, um, which is refusing to believe or being unable to believe how much their models were going to hold. And so, again, there is a difference between political science as some kind of abstract body of knowledge and political scientists. There's also, by the way, a difference between like epidemiology and epidemiologists, public health and people who do public health. And maybe a different way to put this is a mistake that we make in journalism is letting the one stand in for the other. What a discipline says and what the people you're talking to from a discipline say are different. Um, particularly when you're facing something new. Uh, political science did not have a tremendous number of pandemics that happened in modern polarized conditions to, to work off of. And so, you know, and then the other thing is a lot of the data was tough. Uh, it is the case that Donald Trump's polling looked much worse in key states throughout the crisis than it, what we saw on election day ended up proving out. And so, you know, a good political scientist who is working off the best data we have, which is, well, Trump looks like he's going to get squashed in Wisconsin. So maybe he should have tried something different here, even though his overall approval ratings have been pretty stable. I would not have asked a political scientist to tell me the polls are wrong. Like, that's not in their expertise. But the polls were definitely wrong in Wisconsin. They were wrong in Pennsylvania. I mean, they were wrong in the same set of places. And so, like, that's a, that's a question... One of the very difficult questions for journalists, for political scientists, we all are relying on, at some point, someone else's domain of data expertise to build a view of a complex world and figure out which of our, our ideas and which of our evidence bases to apply to it. And when it turns out that the people you are relying on have mismodeled the situation, epidemiologists right at the beginning of COVID, um, pollsters, you know, through much of the election, you know, in the Midwest. I don't know what I would ask of people. You know, we're we're trying to give you the best we can, but the best we can is within a world that is uncertain. And so, you know, I did a bunch of stories throughout the the period of of of, of COVID, talking to political scientists and pollsters about Donald Trump's eerily stable approval ratings. Right, the the, the things I'm giving you are not things I thought of after the fact. Like this is my real time, you know, journalism happening here. So, I mean, that's all fine and well and good, but you only have the information you have at the time. 
and the question of like, what do you do if the polls suggest a kind of Donald Trump collapse in key states? And then that doesn't manifest. Like, what do you think happened there? And how do you, uh, you know, update that into your models? Should you never believe polls again? Should you say, well, nope, we have fundamentals models? Like, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Like, one other problem, of course, with political science during this period is that how do you look at economic fundamentals models during a, an economy that's just been put into lockdown? Should you build off of that the same kind of recessionary dynamics we've seen in the past? Or should you say it's something different? Uh, you know, like different, as you know perfectly well, different forecasting models gave dramatically different answers depending on the moment they were taken. And so, you know, I mean, again, what to believe from political science was an open question during this period. Yeah, I guess I didn't see it uh, that way in, in real time. I, I thought political scientists were, were mostly clear that it was going to be a very close uh, election um, and that uh, the dynamics of the year made it more uncertain uh, than in than in prior years, but maybe that's not how it, seen, it sounded, or maybe that just wasn't uh, uh, an exciting story to to relay. Um, I think maybe that no, that, that's right. People people constantly said it was going to be a close election, but there was a lot of like you have to both you have to both. What I heard happening constantly from people on all sides of it was, well, the polls suggest a blowout right now, but you never know, and so that got reported a lot. But that like. I think one of the things that I think is slightly different between the way I see this and you see it is that like I can't call up political science and ask it a question. I have to call up a political scientist. And I have a pretty good idea of the literature, but also sometimes literature conflicts. Did I want the election forecasting literature here or did I want the polarization literature? This is not a critique of political science. I just don't think political science had any more it could do during the past year than it could do. And I think it did what it could do fairly well. I just, I mean, you know, Maybe this is like not for not for this podcast exactly. I just don't think it was an interesting time for a referendum on political science. I think the pandemic demanded other kinds of expertise to be understood. How about on racial prejudice and policing? We obviously went through last summer a moment when everybody uh, was uh, more interested, uh, and political science played some role in the public conversation. Uh, but but how did social science generally do in informing that conversation and political science specifically? That's a really good question. I don't know that I have a good answer to it. Um, I certainly know about the policing conversation where I don't think uh, political science has been as central in that debate, probably because that is very much a debate about things that aren't, right? What would happen if we defunded the police? What would happen if we abolished the police? I mean, there is some information in political science about what would happen if you propose these things. And I think, you know, more or less like that has panned out. Um, but you know that I don't think that's been a place where political science has has the has the answers exactly. Um, in terms of the the broader debate, though, look like I mean this is a big part of my book too. I think something that has been present in political science, although not always well emphasized, is as Hakeem Jefferson likes to say that that race is the defining cleavage of American politics, and I think that has come to be a much more broadly accepted view than was true five or six or eight years ago, but. You know, even if you look at political science that was done sort of before this moment, I mean, I always find it very potent as a way of thinking about American political polarization that for so long in the DW nominate system, you needed the second dimension of civil rights in order to explain the cleavages between the parties. I mean, that is something that like, I don't think like that set of, you know, Poole and Rosenthal are thought of as like crazy woke political scientists from like, you know, a decade and, you know, or two decades ago when they're starting to do this work or, or whenever it begins. But I mean, right in there, 
they show something that has become very, very, very broadly accepted, um, which is that you cannot understand the nature of the coalitions and the nature of political polarization without understanding race as a central cleavage, certainly in, in, in mid-century politics. And that's a, a very, very important part of, of, of my book and, 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 and my ultimate work. And, you know, I think that's continued to be the case. I think that, you know, Liliana Mason's work is excellent here and the work she's now doing with Nathan Calmo has been really interesting. And there's a lot of people doing, you know, fantastic stuff. Um, Jennifer Richardson, who I think is technically a psychologist, but is a social scientist working on these issues. I think her work on demographic threat is fantastic. So in terms of um, uh, that space, I, I think the, like the social scientists, the empirical social scientists broadly have been terrific. The one place where I, I think there's something very unsettled in political science is how to understand racial resentment measures. And there has been certainly a, a, an amount of internal debate in the profession about this that I get the sense people don't really want to have this fight, but is something that is like a big asterisk in my head now, because I've both like seen studies that seem to validate that the racial resentment measures are picking up on something important and also studies that question whether or not what it's picking up on is as simple as, as racial resentment. And yet it's a very standard way of testing this out. And so that's a place where I think that there's a methodological debate in the discipline that as I understand it is reasonably unsettled, but you know, whether it's for reasons of, of, of concern about the politics or whatever, strikes me as as important and I, I wish there was somewhere like I, I wish I felt that the best methodologists had come up with some kind of answer for me so I could be confident in what I was reading when I, I see things using those measures. Do you have a view uh, on this? Yes. Can you tell me what yeah. to think? Uh, I think the racial resentment measure incorporates both conservative ideological precepts and racial animus and it was designed to do that. Uh, and it accurately points out that those two things are quite fused <laughs> in modern American politics. Um, but that means that you're always going to have a debate about the extent to which it is it was formed by by one or the other. Um, and I think that's going to be hard to solve historically and incredibly hard to differentiate now because they're so fused. So, so then what do you think about studies or other things that use racial resentment as a stand-in for actual racial feelings then use it to track how people are moving across the political system? Because if what you're saying is true, then you get somebody who's, they're just conservative in their views. And you might just say conservatism is just now a measure of racial resentment. But obviously a lot of conservatives don't see it that way. And then it can blow out into to other areas where, you know, maybe something, maybe a view, and I think this is like a reasonable interpretation to take, maybe views that have their start in American politics as a way of excluding black people from public goods. You know, now they're just conservative views and their way, you know, as Heather McGee would put it, of, of draining the pool for everyone. But so then how do you, when you see a paper, because they come across your desk all the time, that starts with racial resentment measures to understand the way racial resentment is changing political decisions. Do you then say, okay, that is how racial resentment is changing political decisions? Or do you say that is how some complex mix of being a conservative and having, you know, resentful views about other race. Like what, what is your interpretation now? Well, the, the latter, I mean, I think it's unsettled again, what the, the prime mover is. I think there's also a lot of evidence that uh, conservative views or Republican identification uh, comes first and then people adopt uh, racial resentment views. Um, so I don't think you can you can know for sure that that one comes before the other, um, but 
it's certainly true that they're fused <laughs> in contemporary American politics. So if you're trying to if you're trying to pull this apart today, it's going to be hard. I think we can make progress historically um, in in some cases of sort of figuring out with panel surveys what came first, and in looking at the the role of political rhetoric and fusing them, um, you know what mattered. But but they. I, I guess I'm more comfortable with the, the views are now fused <laughs> than than maybe you are. Fair enough. So uh, a climate, another uh, pet issue of, of yours and uh, ours. Uh, the political it's, it strikes me that this is an area where political science does the thing that you may not that you may not have liked at the, <laughs> at the beginning. We say sort of what the problem is. We say it's going to be hard to unpolarize the issue. If you want advice on convincing people, we tell you to use conservative arguments, use Republican spokespeople, uh, things that might not be very viable. Um, on the other hand, maybe maybe that that is the best we can do with sort of the, the contemporary uh, nature of the issue. I think you may be overreading the argument I made at the top of this. So I think this is a place where political science is doing a different thing I talked about which is not being willing fully to believe what its own literature base tells us about the problem, which is to say it is not politically solvable. For any of the set of goals that I think most of the people we are thinking of would hold as the level of decarbonization we need by the date we need it, the answer that political science gives you is it's not fucking going to happen. Like it's not going to come close to happening, absent some kind of technological miracle we're not anticipating. And so then a question becomes, well, what then? Right. And if your answer, what then is like, try to have some Republican spokesman, like, no, that's ridiculous. Like, fine, give it a shot, but that's not going to do it. A lot of people have tried that. I mean, I'm struggling with this question right now for a column I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of writing. You know, are, is the answer just like, you got to really start just talking about adaptation because we are going to have, you know, two ish or more celsius degrees of warming and all the horrors that are going to follow from that is the answer you know like the new andreas mall book argues that you're going to need to you're going to begin to need like extra legislative pressure like blowing up pipelines and this should be understood as a kind of violence that the present is committing on the future and the future needs to begin striking back uh, i don't like even talking about that but but i think that the one thing that nobody seems to want to do in this conversation is just say, almost certainly the legislative pathway is going to fail. And then what? I don't like saying that either. But this is a place where I think there's a kind of activist merger, particularly among, among political scientists who, who don't want to sound hopeless to people. Like a lot, like this is, I think, one place where I think that political scientists speak differently than you do, and maybe because they speak to me as somebody who's speaking to, to people who are, are, are broader. But political scientists never want to be hopeless. Like they believe in things too. Like they want to believe we're going to have a better future too. And so when you talk to them, you don't kind of get sometimes the hopeless take, which is maybe the right one, which is it's not going to happen. I mean, we might pass some bills, like maybe some version of the American Jobs Act passes. It's not enough and it's not going to pass in full form and it's just not going to happen quickly enough. So then what? It's an interesting question for, for political science. Also, of course, for society, like what do you do if politics is going to fail? What does political science do if politics is going to fail? And you might say it's not politics failing, it's politics succeeding because the Republican Party doesn't want to do anything here. And, you know, outcomes are supposed to be a compromise between the between the pluralistic factions in our democracy. And so, you know, we're getting we're getting in some way like the, you know, the sum total of what we want. But if you think that 
failing or succeeding should be based on something a little bit more objective, like preserving some semblance of the climate in which human civilization has prospered, then it's going to fail. Uh, That is my take from reading a lot of political science. And given that take, the number of people we seem willing in the profession to answer that question, to even muse about that question is very low in my experience, which I think is interesting. Um, And I don't blame them. Again, I know why people don't want to sound hopeless and I don't want to sound hopeless, but I don't exactly think of it as hopeless. I do think that it is a case within the history of politics that sometimes the legislative pathway fails. And people begin trying other things. I mean, the civil rights movement is an example of this. Um, war is, of course, often an example of this, both civil and, and you know, interstate. And so there are all kinds of things one might begin to talk about, but I don't find a lot of enthusiasm for talking about them. So uh, a lot of the social science that we're talking about is, is uncertain. And we, have, of course, have gone through a replication crisis in psychology, a lot of complaints about social science. How, how do you... How do we and how should how do you go about uh, explaining research evidence based uh, findings um, that nonetheless are uncertain and could change? Uh, and you know how big of a threat has it been that uh, some canonical studies haven't held up and the esteem of uh, social science has has suffered some as a result? You can, you can tell me because you know better if I'm wrong on this, but my understanding is this is much more of a problem within the broad set of like psychological disciplines than within political science. Uh, I, I get this question a lot, but political science, I am, it, it has made me somewhat more skeptical about political psychology studies, including experimental ones. I will say that. That said, um, and, and we could talk about political psychology if you want, but a lot of what I use in political science is people running analyses on vote totals. And that's, unless somebody made a mathematics mistake, which is, of course, possible, like, that's not going to change exactly. I mean, the, the situation of American politics can change, and hopefully over time will. But I'm just trying to tell you what's going on currently, often, oftentimes. So, you know, when I think of using, say, Francis Lee's work on, you know, the president taking a position increases the chance of the party line vote, I'm not concerned that's not going to replicate. And a lot of the political science that I use is backed up by my own political reporting. I'm using political science to illuminate trends and dynamics I am seeing occurring right in front of me. So I often think of that as a secondary form of validation, you know, at least within the standards of journalism, if not the standards of literal peer review. And so it doesn't worry me that much. Now, I, I do hear sometimes about studies where I'm a little bit like, eh, like I think the political psychology literature is clearly getting at something very important, but with tools that are too crude for me to think they're really reliable. And so I don't really know what to do about that. I think there's clear psychological sorting. I think all the stuff about openness to experience and some of these disgust responses and so on and so forth, it's getting at something. But with reasonably limited experimental manipulations, I've seen things that, that reverse results. Um, some of the things are, are cutting really, really tightly or narrowly, or you're using measures that are, it's interesting that they correlate, you know, like the authoritarian index for parenting, but what is it correlating to exactly? So that is a place of, of political science or, politi- or sometimes psychological work that I find both, it's clear that there's a psychological substrate to our politics, and it's clear that it's telling us something, but in a, at a narrow level, I'm, I'm uncomfortable relying on it too heavily because I think our tools are simply too crude. So, you know, it's, it's gesturally correct, I think, and, and probably more important than we give it credit for. And any one study I, I, I'm a little bit nervous about. So. 
you know, but I'm not, I'm not too, for most of political science, for better or worse, y'all are not doing work that is so experimentally validated that it's even open to replication. And so, you know, when I read a, a, a Levitsky um, Ziblot book about comparative politics, like, I'm not worried it's exactly going to fail to replicate. You're, we're just trying to draw some illumination out of history here. Uh, I sure hope the Nazis fail to replicate. Like, I'm not going to, like, call them up and yell at them that nobody else is, like, taking power as a genocidal maniac, despite the fact that they wrote that book. So what's next uh, for you in uh, using social science to inform public commentary? Anything coming after uh, why we polarize, why we're polarized and anything that political scientists should be doing uh, to to better inform public commentary? I don't know about that. I mean, for me, there's a big world. I try to keep covering it and I got I got plenty on my plate right now. I'm, you know, I'm thinking a lot about uh, like questions of democracy. And I'm thinking a lot about questions of blue state governance right now, right? You know, both like sort of democracy at the high level, but also the ways and reasons that blue states often fail to govern uh, as well as you would think at the, at the lower level. And pretty the, the, the history and legacy of some of the progressive era reforms in actually creating a bit of a divided soul on the left. In terms of like, you want to do a lot with government, but you've actually created a huge amount of veto points in government because you're worried about special interests using it as a tool of their own power. You know, in terms of political science, I I continuously think, and you're somebody who does a tremendous job trying to battle this back, I continuously think it is so much harder than it should be to follow the state of the research. Like why I cannot go somewhere that is run by APSA and see the set of papers and working papers and so on that are coming out that week, it will just baffle me forever and categorize them and search them and so on. So, I mean, you know, there's a Matt Grossman Twitter feed and then there's like individual people like yelling about stuff on Twitter or, 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 or more valuably giving their research on Twitter. But there's just not nearly as much of a, of a digest and repository as I would think there would be. And so continuously, that is what I think should exist like a better centralized resource to keep me up to date on what's going on and then to search it. You know, and some people created things like this. I mean, Women Also Know Stuff, the um, site that that uh, brings to view and lets you search by specialty, like the, the work of women political scientists is fantastic. Why there's not one of those for political science too, um, you know, where I can do some more searching and, and can see, you know, who might be able to talk about my subspecialty that I'm looking for that week. Or again, just follow the research that people think is we're seeing that week, you know, aside from, again, your, your Twitter feed. I don't know. Uh, it, that, that seems to be like something that the profession could put a couple hundred thousand bucks into a year and like the problem would be solved. So maybe we'll take a page from your podcast and have you uh, recommend three political science books that have uh, influenced you. Sure. Um, I always recommend um, the, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll do the couplet here, right? Uh, Francis Lee's Two Bucks Beyond Ideology and then uh, Unstable Majorities, is it? Um, I think have both influenced me tremendously. Liliana Mason's book, Uncivil Agreement, is is terrific and, and, and really changed how I thought about identity. And then a third that I just think is fantastic is Robert Mixey's Pass Out of Dixie to talk about some of the, the work political science has done on race. I think Mickey's a political scientist. I, I could be wrong. Yeah, yes. Yes. Um, and I just thought that book was fantastic and also giving you a really different understanding of what was going on in, in mid-century American politics. So I, I highly recommend that one. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. 
If you like this discussion, you should check out my conversation with Brenda Nyan, our episode on when and where climate policy can succeed, and our panel on whether racial attitudes elected Trump. A special thanks to my engineer for 100 episodes, Alejandro Gillespie, and the lead producer at Niskanen, Christy Eshelman. It's been a great run so far. Thanks to Ezra Klein for joining me. Please check out Why We're Polarized, and then listen in next time. Thank you.